Now, it's usually my fault. Usually I go to Lee because if I said it, she'll have got it. And if I didn't say it, she'll let me know. Um, anyone missing any blanks? You all good here? Okay. Um, any questions from oh, Owen? <laughs> all right, we got a question. Owen. He's been waiting for half an hour. All right. So what do you mean by make up your mind about Jesus if God the Father causes us to believe in Jesus? I mean compatibilism. Um, what I mean is I believe the sovereignty of God is not either or. I know that... I, I know that uh, let me jump back a step further. Owen's question is, if God gifts faith, what do you mean make up your mind? Um, and... I think the Bible presents uh, a reality where events are both fully caused, and I know this may sound like a friend of mine said this, metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. Fine, um, I'll own it. Events are fully caused by God and the creature so that when you establish divine causality, you don't eliminate or nullify human causality. God, God calls on all people everywhere, according to Paul, to repent. Everyone is responsible to. And everyone can repent if they want to. Um, the fact that God gifts faith doesn't undermine, nullify, or remove human responsibility. Actually, I think it establishes it. But what I'm, let me... I'm not saying I understand how that perfectly works. I'm saying in case after case after case, Joseph to his brothers, Genesis 50, 20. They come, dad's dead, Jacob's finally dead, and they think Joseph might um, have his revenge on them now, that, that their father is what stayed his hand. And they say, oh, please remember, you promised our father. And Joseph says, am I now in the place of God? You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. One event, the selling of Joseph into slavery, they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work within you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So the book of Hebrews has warnings to spur us on, lest we fall away. Yet I firmly believe the perseverance of the saints, the maintenance of the living faith of God's children, is an activity he does. But I think he may well do it through the agency of his creatures. I, so we are commanded to believe. We are, there are things I can do to strengthen my faith. There are things I can do to invite further grace. And I am called by God to do those things. There are measures I can take to guard my faith from shrinking or cooling that I'm responsible to do. If I end up doing those things, it's only because of the grace of God in me. So the simple answer to your question, what do I mean? I mean establishing divine sovereignty, divine initiative, by no means nullifies human responsibility and agency. That's what I mean. Does that make any sense? Sort of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> sort of. Um, how, how much influence do we have over our own... Uh, I, I guess how... How much influence do we have over our own belief? How do we complete? Complete. So, how Full. do we, how do we believe something that we didn't believe before? Mm. How do you believe something you didn't believe before? Um, you 
we are not, like your point's taken, we're not just free to believe something we don't think is true. Um, what Jesus says, so in, in John 3, I, let me put together John 3 and John 4. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus straight up, you are not qualified to see and understand and recognize truth. You, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, right? So Nicodemus comes to sort of evaluate Jesus, and Jesus flat out says, you're not in any position to judge me. In John 4, the one at the well, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and him who is, who is asking you, let him drink, you would ask of him and he would give you living water. So what we can do is we can recognize the rebuke that our, our sight and our understanding is corrupted and flawed. We need assistance. We can ask for that assistance. We can, we can I love the man in the Gospels, help my, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, we can do that. I can, so when my faith is weak, when I want to strengthen my faith, when I'm having a hard time actually practically believing, I know that some of the key ingredients that God uses to bolster and strengthen faith is his word, his spirit, and his people. And so I probably should be reading my Bible I probably and prayer. I probably should be in prayer more. I probably should be with other believers more. These are the ordinary means of grace that God uses to strengthen, increase, and build faith up. Let me give you one example. Go to Hebrews um, 3. Now, the interesting thing is the very act of applying God's prescriptions to strengthen faith is an act of faith. Um, Hebrews 3. Incidentally, as I'm sure Dave Stringer knows, because he'll have it marked in his Bible. This was my very first sermon in 2007. Here, back before I got my deviated septum fixed, and I was like, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrew. It was bad if you go back and listen to it. It was bad. No, it was bad. Um, and uh, Hebrews 3, uh, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So, so there's a warning. Be on your guard. Beware, brothers, plural, brothers, lest there be in any one of us that the switching between plural and singular is significant here. So I'll, I'll use the Southern, all y'all, right? All y'all be on your guard. Against what? Against one individual. Against any of you or any one of you. And lest there be in any of you, any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you, singular, to fall away from the living God. So all of us are on alert, lest one of us should be falling away because of an evil, unbelieving heart. What's the remedy? But all y'all, the, the Greek verb is plural, it's clear. All y'all exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the remedies, it's not the only remedy, but one of the remedies of an individual's heart cooling and drifting away from God is regularly being in fellowship. So all of us, the, the, I mean, the rationale makes sense. God's spirit strengthens his people. There can be days where you're having a bad day, where your faith is weak, and someone else with strong faith encourages you. And there may be a day where your lips are praising God, and God uses you to strengthen the one who's having a bad day. That This sort of group maintenance is part of God's design to keep us believing. So this is one of the ways God causes us to meet the finish line, and we need to do it. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? It's, it's not, well, God does it. Well, yeah, God does it. God does it as we obey this, 
That, that's how, he doesn't do it magically. He doesn't keep us believing through magic. He does it through means. And the means are some of the very things he tells us to do. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there'd be one example of there's a passage telling me how to maintain my faith. It's not the only way to maintain my faith, but one of the ways I maintain my faith is by regularly gathering. I used to have a, uh, I used to have, an, uh, I had a couple yellow legal pads, Chris. When one of them checked, we'd say like, "Okay, is it today? Hey, it's still today. So why don't we encourage each other?" You know, people calling it today it was really cheesy, stupid. We thought I thought it was the height of wit back then. You know, um, I had another yellow one that had all things, you know, like rejoice for all things. Be like, should we should we praise God for this? Let's see if it's on the list. Hold on. Oh, all things. Yeah, we should probably praise God for that. Yeah, thought it was super clever. Uh, okay, yeah, I know, right? Okay, you think my puns are bad now? Uh, and I have yet to say the Feast of Booths was intense in a sermon. <laughs> I'm afraid some rotten fruit's going to come up, you know? Okay, anyway, sorry, Owen, does that make any sense? Like, as a beginning attempt to that? Yeah. Um, by the way, John Piper's recent book, Providence, and it's massive, has got the best section on the sovereignty of God over Christians and their growth, and even unbelief, that I've ever read. So if you wanted to borrow it or check it out, you, I could zero you in on the passages, the, the sections to look at. But th- no, there is, there is a mystery. Um, let, me, let me show you one more. Philippians, Philippians 2, the one I referenced, um, just to see it. Um, that the logic of Scripture, and I fully get, I would default to, if God did it, then I didn't. Or if I did it, then God didn't. I get that that makes the most natural sense to us. And I'm not claiming I know how divine sovereignty and human responsibility coexist. I'm just claiming that biblically they do. And this would be a positive example. So in, in, in Genesis 50-20, we see the negative example of Joseph's brothers and their sin. Here we see this, um, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work, Greek verb, energo. We get energy from this, or ergonomic. This is work. This is activity. Get to work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's a command. I need to get to work. Why should I do this? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. What does he work in me? He works in me both to will and to work. So I need to get to work because God is causing me to work. That is what Paul is saying. And my, if my default is, well, if God is causing me to work, I can let go and let God I can kick back and relax. No, Paul says, dummy, that's precisely why you got to get to work. And I say, okay. But there, there is the, the, a positive aspect of, no, they don't cancel each other out. The very reason I need to get to work is because God is working in me to work. And I'm not claiming I understand all these things fit together. I'm just saying I, I think they do. I think the Bible presents them that they do. So... Um, so if the person gets to work, you could say in one hand, good for you. you, you obeyed, you heard and received the exhortation to get to work, you worked. God caused you to work. We could say both of those things. Um, and they don't, the one doesn't nullify the other. Does that? Okay. Okay. Oh, Chris Thenley, or Lee, well, you're there, so Chris Thenley, yeah. 
So this is actually a piggyback mm. on, on that. Um, mm. Speaking of the yellow notebook days, we used to <laughs> have a conversation about who killed Saul. Do you remember <laughs> those references? Because mm -hmm. I think there was three answers to it. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, let's go to the end of 1 Samuel. Oh, there are a bunch of examples. This is, this is another good one. Um, Yeah, I got I got the cross reference reference down. Okay, there's three there's three people, but one of them we can rule out. One guy says he killed Saul, and then he didn't. There, so First Samuel thirty one. Saul is wounded mortally. He doesn't want to be made sport of and tortured by the Philistines. So he asks his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer is afraid. He'll later say he did, but he doesn't. And then we read in verse 4, Saul said to the armor bearer, Draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Okay? First Chronicles 10 which is a parallel account. Ten thirteen. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek the guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death. So did the Lord put him to death or did he kill himself? Yes. Um, and there, I could show you five or six other examples like that where God takes credit sovereignly for things humans are clearly credited with as well. Um, so, so, yeah. Lee. Well, talking about the working and stuff, um, the, a verse I just recently was reading and trying to memorize, and I also make it a prayer because I feel like I'm a super lazy person just by nature. You know, I think a lot mm. of us struggle with that. Uh, but the verse is Colossians 1, 29, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Because I think, does it? Does it really powerfully work in me? But I, that's my prayer, that it would mm. powerfully work in me. So it's mm. kind of like his energy is in us working, and we don't have an excuse not to mm. be doing things, doing stuff. Well, one other, one other place, First Corinthians 15. Um, Paul has his Popeye verse. You got anyone, am I too old? Am I the only one who remembers Popeye? Okay, there you go. Um, Sorry. Okay. So, so First Corinthians fifteen nine. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. So, how does God's grace? Don't follow the logic. God's grace towards me wasn't in vain. What is the evidence or the result? of God's grace towards Paul being fruitful and not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So Paul can say, I worked harder than all of them. It wasn't me, it was God in me, but yeah, Paul really did work. So, so Paul can credit God's agency with the good he does, even as he can say he did that. Um, it's, yeah. 
Who's, who's next? Jake wants to take a swing at this. Thanks. I was going to tie it in just a little bit with kind of where Owen started. How yeah. do you want something you didn't want before? How do you see good or beauty in something you didn't see before? We have, you know, we do have freedom, but you're not free in regard to your own desires. We're sort of a slave to our desires. You want what you want. If you follow that back far enough, you can't just make yourself want something. We all have a set of things that we think are good or beautiful. So how is it that believers can see the beauty in God's word or in the beauty in um, salvation that seems like foolishness to the world? And um, maybe it's just because we go here a lot, but it reminds me that there's so many passages about changing of the heart and, and God's promise that he makes to his people. It reminds me of his promise to Israel in Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Excuse me. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rule. When, when we see a true change in the desires of our heart, things that, know, that, things that once looked good to us that now look foolish and sinful and futile. And when we see things that once we didn't understand that we now see the beauty in it, we have this desire for it, we want to be forgiven, we want to be godly. I think, you know, although we do have freedom, it's clear that our desires have changed and I would tie mm -hmm. that back to God working in us and that's that whole essence of a new heart. I still have desires and I still act on those desires, but my desires have changed in a way that I can't just manifest on my own. So the, the analogy I've used, let me, and let me try to explain when the Bible talks about people's inability. It's an inability due to their nature. It's precisely because the inability, as, as Edwards would explain it, Jonathan Edwards, is due precisely because you can do whatever you want. So the analogy I've heard used is you can, lions in a cage, you can fill the cage with straw. And the lion, in one sense, is free to eat the straw. Is there anything preventing the lion from eating the straw? If the lion wanted to, it could eat the straw. The lion will starve to death and will never eat the straw. Why? It's nature. He will never want to. Likewise, you can put a lamb and you can put steak in front of it. And that lamb will starve to death, even though he's perfectly free to eat the steak if he wants. But his nature directs and determines what he wants. That's the limitations we have. So if our nature is sinful, then it's our, this is the basis why the scripture can say it's our fault we don't want to believe. It's, it's not an excuse like, God, how could you be mad at them? They couldn't believe. It's, it's the opposite. They're so corrupt. I use the other analogy. I used a Greg Rolak in a sermon about 10 years ago. Um, I said, look, if, if, if uh, I paid, if Greg and I reach an agreement or I pay him to mow my lawn while I go away on vacation and I pay him, I give him 50 bucks or whatever. And I say, but watch out. There's a big hole in the corner of my yard. You stay away from that hole, Greg, because you could fall in. And it's important to me that you mow my lawn. You've agreed to mow it and I've paid you. Well, I... I leave, get in our van, we drive to Indiana, and Greg just runs and jumps in the hole. Like, first thing, just boop, psh. I come back two weeks later, my yard's overgrown, it's just wild, and I hear Greg, I'm like, Greg, what are you doing? You were supposed to mow my lawn, I paid you to mow my lawn, what are you doing? And he says to me, you can't blame me, I'm in this hole and I can't get out. Well, if you jumped in the stinking hole, yes, I can. 
Likewise, if somebody intentionally gouges out their eyes to stop them from seeing something, and then they were to try to say, you can't blame me for not seeing that. I can't see. If you're this responsible and you intentionally blinded yourself, yes, I can. Likewise, ears. The picture in the Bible presents of man is that we have willfully, all of us, willfully, turned from, exchanged the glory of God for the glory of the creation. We have blinded ourselves and deafened ourselves and caused our hearts to become fat and unfeeling. We then cannot turn around and say, my heart is fat and unfeeling, therefore it can't respond to you and you can't blame me. No, to the degree that we are dead, it establishes our guilt. Um, You might think of this in addiction categories. Imagine somebody so addicted to their drug of choice, they will never even leave the house or get five feet away from it. That's how addicted they are. You know what I mean? Like, um, they just, no, I'm not leaving what I I love. Um, In one sense, you're establishing their, their slavery, their inability. And yet, does that not prove just how, in how much they've given themselves to this? Um... We are such slaves to sin coming into this world that according to John 3.19, this is the judgment, light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil things hates the light and does not come to it, lest his deeds should be exposed. Hey, how evil are they? They're so evil that the second they see a ray of light, they run and hide. That's how committed to their evil they are. And in that state, we're as free to come to the light as the lion is to eat the straw. And we are responsible, the Bible insists we are responsible for, for being in that condition. So it, it's man's inability, r- biblically, is actually establishes our culpability. Because the, the argument is these people are so given over to their idols, they are so given over to their uh, sin that they have they are enslaved to it and, and have no part of them that wants the light. That's, that's the biblical narrative of presentation of sin. We want to do it the opposite. We want to, we want to uh, say, well, if they're that enslaved, you can't really blame them. You know, um, I was listening to a song lyric, the good Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We want to take up Pharaoh's part. We want to be his defense attorney. Um, probably not a good place to be, but anyway. We can keep going with that. Let's... Mel, you, listen, you know what I'm talking about. If you listen to that first message I gave you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, mic, microphone. Microphone to Mel. But there's five people who listen to the podcast, Mel, and those five people want to hear. You made a reference in there, several references. Hmm. One of them was the series, or the book, Chosen by God. By Sproul, yes. By Sproul, and he has a series on that yes. also, which yes. sheds yeah. further light to that topic. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Let me, let me go to Psalm 115. Ugh, Psalm 115. I was just reading a book someone gave me, um, and it was talking about Jesus' repeated reference to he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And um, I think the person who wrote the book misunderstood what Jesus means. Um, I think what Jesus means is, is something pretty indicting. Psalm 115. Um, And while you turn to Psalm 115, I'm going to read to you a couple of verses from Isaiah 6. 
This is a pretty common um, refrain of Jesus, and it's a, it has an Old Testament background to it. Um, Isaiah gets commissioned by the Lord to go preach to Israel, and heard a voice of the Lord saying, who will I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. I've, I've heard that it, like evangelistic commissioning past messages, and they, they don't keep reading. Because what, what Isaiah is being commissioned for is failure. Um, his ministry is going to be one of, of condemning and hardening. Who shall I send? Who will go with us? I said, here am I, send I. And he said, go and say to this people, open quotation marks, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hearts with their ears and understand with their hearts and be turned and be healed. And you read that, you go, whoa, that sounds kind of mean. And stay in Psalm 15, but let me read to you John 12. John 12 is going to quote that and attribute it to Jesus. Jesus has a similar ministry. So this isn't just an Isaiah issue. In John 12, we read... Hold on, let me get there. Verse, middle of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now notice, you're going to see both of these. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. John is clearly indicating they ought to have believed. The whole argument, though he had done so many signs, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Lord who has believed us and what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been believed. Therefore, they could not believe for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This one passage in John clearly blames the people for not believing. He did so many signs, they still did not believe. And this is exactly as it's written in Isaiah, and God blinded them. You're like, whoa, what is going on with that? So Psalm 115, I think, helps give a key to what's going on here. And I've said this before, but I will say it now. When the scripture uses the language of spiritual sensory deprivation, when we're not talking about real eyes and real ears, but they have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear, or hearts of stone, is a common metaphor of some sort of uh, analogy of a physical sense that's not working, and then you use it spiritually. It's, it's the language of idolatry and this is why how God mocks the idols, right? Remember, in like Isaiah 41, they, the idols, what do they have? They have eyes, but don't see. And they have ears, but they don't hear. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They are impotent, right? So that language is, is coming out of that. Now look at the connection Psalm 115 makes. Let's begin with verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. 
They have hands, but do not feel. You picking up the theme here? Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Then get verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What that means is then when people result in the place where they have eyes but do not see and ears but do not hear, it's because they've been conformed to what they worship, which means it is a judgment, a right judgment on idolatry. So when God blinds eyes and deafens ears, he doesn't do it to neutral, nice people. He does it to people who've already chosen their gods, already chosen their idols, and okay, that's what you want as your god? Become like your god. Um, that's, that's the rationale behind that language. And all of Jesus, who he has eyes to hear, eyes to hear, <laughs> eyes to see and ears to hear, um, or I'll give you a new heart, or being born again. All of that regenerative rebirth language is about what was spiritually dead becoming alive. And it's rooted in that idolatry picture that the idols are the ultimate picture of eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear and feet that don't walk and mouths that don't speak. And a people who make them and follow them become like them. So they start having eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear and mouths that don't speak. Um, so that's that's the Old Testament backdrop to that, that imagery. And in that context, God blinding isn't some arbitrary, capricious thing. It's, it's a righteous judgment against idolatry. You know, um, it's the same type of judgment you see in Romans 1. Okay, you want to think perverse thoughts. Here's an unapproved mind that does that really well. You know, oh, you want to pretend that I don't exist, huh? Okay, maybe you fool yourself completely. You know, that, that type of thing. Anyway, that's a lot of talking. Questions on any of that? I think that, that th this concept is critical, though, to understand how man's inability confirms and establishes his culpability rather than undermining it. Yes, Lucas. So, in Psalms, it says in the scripture, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. Yes, sir. The, uh, that's, that's, that's refrain quoted all over the Old Testament is first announced in Exodus 34, where Moses asked the Lord, show me your glory. But there's a twin half to that. The God proclaimed the name of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to generations, who will by no means acquit the guilty of visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children. Our God is a abounding and steadfast love and gracious God, and he's also a God who is just and holy. And, and the exercise of those two, um, of those two characteristics of God, where's Carol, his attributes, uh, his righteousness and his holiness um, can be astounding to us, not the way we'd expect. But he is completely righteous and just in hardening, in blinding, people who've already chosen blind, deaf, mute gods. And he is abounding in steadfast love, in softening hearts, and in turning people to him. Um, that's, that's the way the Bible presents God and his activity. Um,
Well, and I think kind of uh, what you're describing is kind of libertarian free will versus compatibilist free will, which that would be the maybe a good just thing to further discussion or, sure. or, or further uh, reading for people to maybe clarify this concept. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Okay. That's, that's the guild speak. The terms he's using, compatibilist versus libertarian, as, as Bible teachers, theologians talk about this, these are some of the terms they'll use. It matters not to me if you get if you know those terms and the jargon that can be helpful for precise communicating. But let me unpack what that means. When people talk about man's free will, does man have free will? If you said to me, do you believe man has free will? I'd say, yeah, he does. But like everything, it comes down to definitions, what you mean. Um, so take Jonathan Edwards, whose presentation of the freedom of the will, he wrote a book, The Freedom of the Will, I wholly think is orthodox. And for Edwards, the question is, how do you determine in any given choice if it's free? If, uh, if I choose to have a cheeseburger for lunch instead of the uh, quesadilla, was that choice free? And, and what, what criterion? How would you determine if someone's choice was free? Edwards would say, did I make that choice acting solely upon the impulses of my will and nothing but? Was I choosing according to my desires and my will without any external monkeying? And if the answer is yes, then yeah, I was free. That's Edward's answer. So if, if, uh, if, if this today at lunchtime, you go out to lunch and you order you know, the, the uh, tortilla soup, why'd you do that? Did you want to? Because I wanted to. Then it was free. You did it because you wanted to. Um, so Edwards would say that's what freedom is. Now, libertarian free will, or even use another term that's even more precise, countercausal free will. That's, I, I'll use that because I help think it clarifies the distinction better. Um, is this? There's another way to answer that question. You ordered the, uh, the cheeseburger for lunch. Was it free? Only if you were equally capable of ordering something else. That's another way to answer the question. Um, and uh, so for libertarian free will, or I think counter-causal uh, is, uh, is helpful just because it's making the distinction clear. It's only free if I was equally capable of doing something else, okay? And that is not, I would argue, that definition of freedom is both irrational, contrary to our experience, and contrary to Scripture, by which I mean... Um, let, me, let me try to unpack why it makes such a strong claim. It's irrational in this sense. In any given case, in any given moment, the state of my affections and my desires can only be in one position. This is simply like a law of identity. I can't have my desires in two different arrangements at any given moment. They will be in a certain place. Um, I might have multiple desires, Part of me wants the burger, part of me wants the chicken, part of me wants the soup, right? But at any given moment, the arrangement of those desires will be in one in one position only, okay? Um, so in one sense, if I'm going to choose according to my greatest desire, in any given moment, I don't have the equal ability to choose something else because I don't have a different great desire. At any given moment, one desire is supreme. At any given moment, I want one thing more than the others. In any given moment, my desires are such that I either want the burger or the whatever. 
Or maybe I want to eat something that's got less calories. Or maybe I'm trying to save money and I want to eat something that's less expensive. But in any, in any given moment, the arrangement of my desires and the multitude of my desires will be in one and only one position. So practically, there can't be multiple supreme desires. There can only be one. So if, bear, with, bear with me here further. This is why Edwards, I think, definition is helpful. Edwards is saying not only... Freedom is defined as the ability to choose according to your greatest desire in a moment. Everest would go further and say, you are bound to choose what you want most in a moment. You've never done anything but choose what you most want in a moment. Think that through. Someone comes up to you in, in, on the parking lot and sticks a gun in your side and says, give me your wallet. We will find out whether what you most want to do is give them your wallet, take your chances, scream, hit them. Even in your constrained options... Why did you choose to run? Why did you choose to give them your wallet? Why did you choose to try to take the gun out of their hand? Because that's the option you most wanted to do. Now, sometimes what people most want to do is stupid, right? The most wanted doesn't mean wisest. The, the person who wants another, uh, another hit of, of cocaine, is a, it's a self-destructive desire, but they choose it because that's what they want most. I'm not saying best, smartest. I'm just saying what you want most, what you most want to do. Um, so Edwards is saying that's, that's freedom. So for the, for the if, if, let me, okay, we got time, we got five minutes. If that's not how choice works, then I fail to see how there can be any moral responsibility for choice. Let's, let's take a choice that's ethical. I say to my child, why did you hit your sister? Right? And it's going to be ultimately because they wanted to. And why did you want to? Well, they took my toy away from me. Now we're getting a whole argument of motives. I was angry that they took my toy from me, and so I wanted to punish them. I wanted them to feel pain. I wanted to show my displeasure, right? Okay. And that explains the action. But what if the answer was, there is no reason why I chose to hit them. I just did. If we sever the link from action and motive, I think we completely sever the link of human responsibility. If the child truly said, I have no idea why I did it, I think we'd have no basis to punish. I could have just as easy, I had just as much ability to not do that. I could have done something else. I could have kissed them on the cheek. Why did you not kiss them on the cheek? Why did you hit them? I don't know. There is no reason. If, if you, and the reason I make this point is, when I talk to some of my friends who are on the libertarian free will side, they really want to leave open the equal options. And I'm saying, okay, but what, what ultimately decided between the equal options? And at least with one of my friends, he knows enough to know that if he says desire, I'm going to say, at any given moment, you can't have multiple supreme desires. At any given moment, one's king, right? Um, and so he's trying to avoid that. But the only other option is to sever desire will from the equation, and I think you sever all human responsibility at that point. I think the only reason we can, we can find people morally culpable for their actions is because of how their actions express the motives and desires of their heart. And there's a sense in which I believe, where's Rowdy? Am, is, this a, is this a folk tale or that like what somebody does in the first couple seconds after being woken up, they're not necessarily responsible for in the military? Like if you were to strike out at somebody who was waking you up, be, why? Because we recognize there's a separation from what you do, especially when you've got a person who's been trained in combat, 
When you wake them up suddenly, they're not responsible for what they do. Why? No connection to the will. There's muscle memory. There's instinct. And if that's the reason you lash out, and not because your mind and your will made a decision, at certain times and places, we say then you're not ethically responsible for what you do in that moment. We get that. If somebody, if somebody had an allergic reaction and was, was basically high, some people have reactions to MSG that way, where they basically it's like they're on acid. We, we get they're not responsible for what they're doing. Why? Because their will and their mind are not governing their actions. So Edwards insists, I think he's right, desire and will rule choice, and the desire and the will will only ever be in one arrangement at any given moment. And so, no, you're not... If, in that sense, no, you're not equally capable of doing something else. If what I most want is the burger, I will order the burger. I mean, when I say most, I mean everything else factored in. What I can afford, what I want to do with my health, how long I want to be here. When I factor all my desires in, if what wins in the scale is get the burger... Not only will I order the burger, I must. And one further point, try to prove what I'm saying. Imagine the opposite. Why did you order the salad? I don't know. I most wanted to order the burger. Well, then why did you order the salad? I have no idea. Because what I really wanted was the burger. It makes no sense. No, if I ended up ordering the salad at some point, I wanted that. And if, no, I didn't want it. No part of me wanted it. I just did it. I don't know. We're now back to undermining causality. We're back to undermining responsibility. So this is a long way of saying, um, I think the Bible assumes the logic of motive that the desires of the heart affect cause, not affect, determine the actions. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Every word I say is the overflow of my heart, right? Um, My actions and my deeds reveal my heart. They reveal what I worship, what I love. And what I, in any given moment, what I love and what I worship will be in one position and not five. Um, so, no, I'm not equally capable. Uh, last, last proof of this. Um, for anyone here who's had a child, um, does your choice to love your child free, did you just choose one day to do it? You could have just as easily loved someone else's kid, but Greg chose to love Barnabas. That was nice of him. It was good of him to do that. We've got a whole, we've got an entire like catalog in the music industry of I couldn't help but fall in love with you stuff. Like we 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 get experientially that there are things our hearts are drawn to that we are powerless to. You know, whether it's a movie you saw that you couldn't help but just be amazed by, whoa. Or whether it was an image, the Grand Canyon, which, whoa. Or whether it was meeting your wife. And just, man, I just knew that day I wanted to marry. Like, we, we experience, and we have a whole catalog of music and poetry that speaks to desire welled up, and I was helpless but to do what I wanted to do, right? No, nobody looking at the Grand Canyon says, well, I guess there is a lot of aesthetic beauty here. I suppose I will be delighted by it. <laughs> yeah, it seems prudent. seems the appropriate thing to do, really. Wow, right? No, it's just, you see it and you respond. It draws it out of your heart, right? Okay, we could, a lot more we could say about this, but we're at time. Thank you, God bless, and good day.